I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. With this programme, we begin a series called Crime Control as Industry. It consists of a conversation in three parts with Norwegian thinker Nils Christie, a professor of criminology at the University of Oslo. Professor Christie is the author of 12 books on subjects ranging from concentration camps to drug policy to the nature of community. Since 1981, when he published a work called Limits to Pain, he has occasionally chosen to avoid the distortions of translation and address an international audience directly by writing in English. In Limits to Pain, Christie faces the paradox of avowedly humane societies inflicting the pains of imprisonment on their citizens. And he takes, in his own words, a moral stand in favour of creating severe restrictions on the use of man-made pain as a means of social control. This year, after more than a decade, during which many of the societies he tried to address have gone in the opposite direction, Nils Christie has published a new book called Crime Control as Industry. The subtitle is a provocative question. Towards gulags, western style? In this book, Christie asks whether Western societies might now be on the brink of accepting increasingly large numbers of prisoners as a kind of final solution to unemployment, drug abuse, and other unmanageable social tensions and inequalities. That question is our melancholy theme in these three ideas programs, as Nils Christie talks about why crime is an endless resource in modern societies and why law must become an expressive cultural institution and not just a machine pretending to deliver just measures of pain. Crime Control as Industry is prepared and presented by David Cayley. Prison figures are conventionally measured in prisoners per 100,000 of population. In 1850, the United States had considerably less than 50 per 100,000. In 1930, around 100. And in 1970, after a decade of decline, around 100 still. But in that year, an astonishing increase began. By 1979, the figure had reached 230. By 1989, 426. And by 1991, 504. 1.2 million Americans are now in prison. When those on probation or parole are added, the total number under some sort of legal control comes to 4.5 million people. Since 1970, the number of Americans held prisoner has quadrupled. Curiously, during the last phase of this increase, there was an equally precipitate decline in the number of prisoners in what was then the Soviet Union. In 1979, the USSR had 660 prisoners per 100,000. In 1989, only 353. Poland's figures fell even more dramatically, from 300 to just over 100. Canada, just for purposes of comparison, had a modest increase in the 1980s, from 100 to 111. This is relatively high by European standards, twice Norway's rate, for example but still only a fifth of the American level. The rate of imprisonment in the USA troubles Nils Christie greatly. 
as does the decay in American jurisprudence, which he thinks it demonstrates. He comes from a smaller society that has kept relatively few people in prison during the last hundred years. But Norway today faces the same constellation of troubles as all Western societies. Budgets shrink, unemployment grows, the physical and moral basis of the welfare state erodes. And as economies are streamlined for the universal race, a new class of useless and unwanted people is constituted. Prisons, meanwhile, are a lucrative business, building them, staffing them, and supplying them with the latest in weaponry and surveillance techniques generates jobs and money. Prisons also provide a sense of safety for a citizenry increasingly frightened by the feeling of living amongst potentially violent strangers. Under these circumstances, Christie asks, mightn't other countries soon follow the American lead? The U.S. has power, prestige, influence, and even yet a certain glamour. And to a Norwegian, it's hardly an alien land, since there are as many Norwegians there as in Norway. But will citizens accept the necessity of keeping more people in prison for more of their lives? Recently, I spent a couple of days with Nils Christie at his institute in Oslo, and this was the question with which we began our recorded conversation. It is his view, he told me, that it becomes easier to define acts as crimes demanding punishment when we know little of the circumstances and motives of the people doing those acts. And this conviction of his, he said, had roots running all the way back to a study he did in his student days. The first thing I did as a very, very young student, actually, that we were so few at that time, was that the professor in penal law asked me if I would try to describe a very sad um, event in uh, Norway during the Second World War. The story uh, had to do with Hitler's program of Nacht und Nebel, which means night and fog. The idea Hitler and his collaborators had was that to create terror in the occupied areas they moved they took people they had captured and moved them to other countries without telling where they went so what happened here in Norway in 1942 was that we got a huge group of Yugoslavian partisans captured by the Germans and put in prison camps up in the north of Norway under terrible conditions. As bad as in the German concentration camps, as the worst of the German concentration camps. During one year, some 70% of them died. And in this terrible place, there were several hundred Norwegian guards. And just after the Second World War, some 50 Norwegians were actually found guilty in having killed or maltreated these Yugoslavians. So not only were they passively watching them, but they were actively killing them. And Andenes, who had been very active, both during the war and just after, 
said that this is a terrible problem. We we have to understand how could they do it. And I was happily enough completely une- inexperienced, so I didn't know uh, quite what to do. Uh, but uh, with great optimism, I started to read some of the cases and then uh, I started to talk with these former guards and I talked with nearly all the 50 who had killed and maltreated and I talked with a sample who in the same situations had not killed and maltreated and uh, what I tried to get at was what sort of picture did they have of their prisoners and those who had killed and maltreated had without exception been distant from the Yugoslavians. After a while it turned out that one indicator and I included that in my questions all the time did you ever see any pictures and the killers had never never seen pictures while the non-killers said, oh yes, they showed me pictures of the family and they were sitting on the balcony and uh, looked uh, rather nice, etc., etc. So you see the the closeness in the experience was uh, so much greater. And I got it confirmed. I have uh, the book from one of these people in my shelves behind you there. It was a Yugoslavian. I met him in uh, Yugoslavia and also in Norway after some years. I wrote a little book on this which was translated into Yugoslavian. And he come and he told me how he had survived in the camp, which confirms my little story. He had, during one of his first days in the camp, found a little dictionary a German-Norwegian dictionary. And then in the nights he had used his ration of oil to making a little lamp. So he had learned to be able to speak Norwegian. And one day they had a Norwegian guard in the front and one in the back and they should out. They were building a road up in the north. We call that road still the bloody road. And the man behind, the guard behind, asked the man in front, do you have a match? And the man in front said, no, I have none. And then the Yugoslavian said, in Norwegian, but I have a match. And he said, from that day, my chances for surviving was much, much greater. He moved away from being sort of unbelievable uh, strange animal into an ordinary human being but you see I, I I want to defend those who killed by saying that they had difficulties they were ordinary that's important to me and I, I was absolutely assured on that they were ordinary Norwegians the killers in the concentration camps were not monsters They were decent, ordinary people. But here came this group, 
and it was in the same conditions as the groups in all concentration camps. Very, very bad conditions. You dehumanize people bodily. You have diarrhea. You can't keep uh, your bladder. You can't keep anything because you are so sick. But here you can see again how human beings can interpret. The killers said they were dirty. They didn't even take off their trousers when they needed to go to the toilet. While the non-killers said they were sick. They couldn't help it. The killers said you could see the lice move on them. And the non-killers said they hadn't been able to wash for months. Infections, dirtiness, uh, misery. It can be interpreted as indicators of badness or indicators on sickness. And also socially, it turned out that those who had been close enough, they understood something of the social phenomena of living in our concentration camps. But the inexperience didn't understand it. Another, I remember it so well, several of them, several of the killers said they were another breed. And they were completely different from ordinary people. You should have seen them. They could look at uh, one of their fellows that he was killed. They just continued talking. But if you gave one of them a um, little light blow in his face, then they started crying. But several of the observers of concentration camps, particularly Bruno Bettelheim, has described this phenomenon. If what happens to you or to your friends is in a way outside of your ordinary framework for experiences, then you don't react. You can't react. It's so far that, that your best friend is just killed. You continue walking. But to get that light blow in your face is a sort of inside the framework of what you have experienced in your early life. And you break down in despair over this insult. And again, you have to understand a lot to be able to interpret what happens. So in the killer's camp, in a way, it builds up an understanding of those they later killed or had already killed as being outside the framework for ordinary people. And then you can kill. You didn't kill people. You killed something animal or you behaved worse than if they had been ordinary animal because these were bandits up from the Balkans, as the Germans told them. While those who had been close, seen the pictures, listened to their interpretation, being able to connect it to their own existence, were thereby also prevented from uh, doing the situation even worse than it was. I don't say they behaved as heroes, rescued them, etc., etc., but they, you know, as far as I can see, uh, most of them behaved decently. It has influenced my whole, uh, scientific, uh, yeah, my whole life, mm -hmm. uh, this experience, and is behind a lot of what I'm trying to do in understanding 
what is called crime and also in understanding what to do and what to do to prevent certain acts. This preoccupation extends right into Nils Christie's present work, the book under discussion here, Crime Control as Industry. In this new book, Christie draws on a work published in 1989 by sociologist Zygmunt Bauman called Modernity and the Holocaust. Holocaust studies, Christie says, can be divided into three stages. The first stage emphasized deviant individuals, authoritarian personalities in the famous formulation of Adorno and his colleagues. The second, deviant social systems. Works of the third and current stage, like Baumann's, emphasize how typical Germany was. Baumann's book, according to Christie, is about the social production of moral indifference in modern societies. It treats the Holocaust, in Baumann's own words, as a rare yet significant and reliable test of the hidden possibilities of modern society. The question by Baumann is reformulated not how could it happen, but it will be much more uh, why hasn't it happened more? There is nothing in our type of society that give any guarantee that it will not happen again and again. The German experience, Baumann would say, is not so much uh, sort of uh, created out of anti-Semitism, out of uh, the special ideology of Nazis. It's much more a result of German bureaucracy, German science, the ability to be rational, the ability to use uh, the tools of modernity. And uh, what becomes uh, unpleasantly clear, not only by Baumann now, but also by several students, particularly of the medical profession, is that uh, to a large extent what happened in the Holocaust was made possible by professional perfection. An important book here is Robert J. Lifton's on the Nazi doctors. He has the subtitle Medical Killing and the Psychology of Genocide. Medicine was helpful from the very first stage by having a training arena for extermination. It was first those physically handicapped who were supposed to get a life not worth living. Hitler sent a special representative to inspect one such case, and they decided that uh, here it uh, would be okay to kill. But they didn't call it kill, of course. They called it something nice. And then you get the mentally retarded, who uh, was not worth to be preserved. Then you got the insane. Then you got the people with social problems, with alcohol problems, or people called psychopaths. And then you get the race. So 
uh, it all fitted into a sort of medical analogy where the German body had to be preserved, the body of the nation. And you know from medicine that when you have sick parts, you cut them off and the body becomes healthy again. And here you had all these categories of non, not wanted people. And you have a rating scale also, who are the best people. And the medical profession was put then in operation to, in a way, purify the nation. And even in the very concrete running of the camps, according to Lifton and many other reports, medical personnel took very active part. On the platform where the train arrives, here were always medical personnel present. A little nod and the person would be acceptable for work, a nod in the other direction, that person would go to extermination during the next day. Again, you can see the importance of the meaning you give. It was seen as a medical diagnostic activity. So doctors had to attend. If doctors had not attended, it would have been killing. No, it was diagnostic and a medical cure of the folk body. Students were visiting the camps, as they would have missed, visited the wards in the hospital. And uh, examples of bodies went to the uh, German universities. And according to statements, they are still in use some places. And if you had taken this away, it wouldn't have been uh, quite that easy to do it. So the shocking thing is the ease of that uh, whole operation. And also that it couldn't have been done to that extent if it hadn't been governed by rational thoughts and a well-organized bureaucracy. But how is that germane to our contemporary situation? I mean, just because we live in a technological society and value rationality and have us and live amongst virtual strangers, is that enough for you? Yeah, my anxiety, if that is the word in English, mm -hmm. would be the question, what will be the next example? And since I've been working so, yeah, with concentration camps for my whole life, I cannot escape then again looking into what we are doing in the penal institutions. And if we look at that, both on the basis that closeness in the local communities all over the Western world are in a way dissolving, the tools for handling large number of people are getting more and more efficient. The underclass or the dangerous classes are growing since industrialization has now come to a point where unemployment is so great. This combined with a very stern policy against drug use means that the prison population in the industrialized societies seems to be growing. It's growing in Europe, there are exceptions to it, 
that it is steadily growing uh, these last 10 years. And then the sort of the industrial leader of the world, United States, there the prison population is exploding. It is nearly unbelievable what is happening just now. I mean, in that country, it is now more than one million people in prison. They have about ten times as many prisoners as we have in Norway. And they have four or five times as many as you have in Canada. And it is just increasing and increasing. It seems to be no end to it. And I think uh, that there are several reasons for saying that it is not improbable that we will be forced to call what is happening in several industrialized countries for re-establishment of the idea of gulags. is a strong word with powerful associations, but Nils Christie has his reasons for using it. By evoking the former Soviet Union where we get the term, it draws attention to the fact, always more obvious in the case of an enemy, that prisons are part of a system of social control and not just a reaction to a naturally occurring phenomena called crime. The strength of the word also highlights radically new circumstances. The most important of these circumstances, for Nils Christie, include the decline of the welfare state as a moral community, the war on drugs as a disguised form of social control, and the political co-optation of the institution of law. He also wants to point to the refinement of techniques of surveillance and control, and finally, to the economic dynamism of the control industry itself. Prison means work and money a lot of people. It has developed into an enormous industry, the prison industry. It's an industry in building prisons, as I, you can see in the American uh, journals of that type. You phone, we build. Within six months, you have your prison. Uh, or we provide telephones that are perfectly suited for prisons. Or we provide the necessary weapons, or we provide the food, we provide the medical service, etc. So, in the building and providing, and of course also in the jobs of running the prisons, these are great invested interests. And secondly, it's of course that in societies where you have unemployment, and when you have great class differences, and when you maybe don't look at those at the lower end of the class scale as ordinary people, or at least you don't identify seeing them as people suffering the way you are suffering, behaving the way you are behaving, etc., then 
you are both afraid of that glass and tempted to apply force. And when that force at the same time gives jobs, then it is a great temptation just to continue. And when then, as the last element in this, modern technology enters, when you have this fantastic electronic industry where you can put on your prisoners inside the prison and such, uh, yeah, what you call it in English, I don't quite uh, remember, but uh, bands around bands, wristbands, wristbands, yes, uh, and other bands, so that you don't even need to talk to them. You don't even ask them what their names are or what numbers they have because you can read it electronically. But you know it from the supermarkets. It's the same principle you put on everything you pay for. And you put the same things on the person. Then he stops to be a person and becomes a commodity. And then again we are back to the concentration camp. This is not a human being. It is a number that just passes that point of control. How can you expect that ordinary breaks put on ordinary people's behavior vis-a-vis -vis other ordinary people? How shall that be activated when you create social situations like this? I think we have created situations perfectly suited to be called gulags. And I can find no good reason except that the uh, United States might run completely out of money for uh, stopping this. In his book, Crime Control as Industry, Nils Christie gives a number of hair-raising examples of what he calls the technological push in the prison industry. First, there are the ads from journals like Corrections Today, ads whose tone makes it clear that what is being sold are industrial products which can be hyped in the same way as dog foods or deodorants. If feeding a captive audience is part of your job, reads one, then talk to the food service specialists who know how to do justice. Some inmates would love to stab, slash, pound, punch, and burn you, says another, but they won't get past your STAR, Special Tactical Anti-Riot Vest. Or there's Capstun 2, proven effective against drug abusers and psychotics. Then there are the prisons, like Pelican Bay, which the governor of California described as a state-of-the-art model for the rest of the nation when he opened it in June of 1990. This was how the Los Angeles Times described the place. Pelican Bay is entirely automated, and designed so that inmates have virtually no face-to-face -face contact with guards or other inmates. For 22 and a half hours a day, inmates are confined to their windowless cells. They don't work in prison industries, they don't have access to recreation, they don't mingle with other inmates. They aren't even allowed to smoke, because matches are considered a security risk. Inmates eat all meals in their cells, and leave only for brief showers and 90 minutes of daily exercise. They shower alone and exercise alone in miniature yards of barren patches of cement enclosed by 20-foot-high cement walls covered with metal screens. The doors to their cells are opened and closed electronically by a guard in a control booth." End quote. 
And finally, Christie points to a new institution with possibilities just as sinister as the totally managed environment of Pelican Bay, the so-called home prison. You are tagged with some electronic uh, ankle bracelet, if that is the word. And if you leave your house, uh, a sign is broken, a connection is broken to your telephone, and it is cleared down in the police station that you have left your house. But no, that is an old-fashioned device. In uh, the technical journals of uh, the United States, you can now find uh, advertisement of much more sophisticated uh, measures because home prison is, of course, not satisfying. Uh, I can, you can only imagine what some of these terrible people are doing in their homes. Uh, they might even drink. So the new technical device is a special machinery that call you up two, three or four times a day. And it is, you have to take your telephone, and but you have a television camera looking into your face so they can see that you are you. And you have to talk so they can listen that. It's your voice coming there. And you have to breathe into a machinery which immediately uh, analyze uh, the air you are sending out if you have been drinking. And I'm not very much in doubt that within short you also will have to pee while the television camera is watching that you are doing it and it will automatically be uh, uh, sent over telephone the results of the test if you have used drugs or not. So it is increasingly possible to control large amount of the population and it is in many people's interests to do so. Is this already happening? Oh yeah, oh. home imprisonment is in full use. Yeah, 30, 40,000 uh, in the United States, some in England. It is spreading this idea, but not very fast. Um, are in home prison with this electronic uh, device. It's told a story about it, which I hope is true. Uh, but uh, I can't tell it more than as an uh, illustration of one hopeful aspect of humanity. And that is of these poor people who have to keep um, service on the machinery. A big firm uh, run this home prison uh, machinery and they sent uh, electronic workers to the homes of these people who uh, were in home prisons. And it turned out that, that when they went there, they used more and more time. First, they might be able to cover 10 clients a day, but soon there were seven and then some of them were down into five. So this was uneconomic. And uh, they investigated and they found out that the reason, of course, was that these technicians coming there found deeply suffering people in trouble. And they <coughs> couldn't limit their task uh, to, the, uh, to fixing the machinery. They had to go into the human person and stay there for a while. So they come in trouble. So that's the little uh, piece of uh, hope in it. As it stands right now, in the United States and in the United Kingdom, people are being sentenced to home incarceration. Yes. 
in what circumstances would such sentences be given? Well, it might probably be not extremely serious. Uh, and it, uh, it might be drunken driving, for example, or it might be a more uh, minor theft, uh, minor embezzlement, etc. And you might be sentenced. I saw one report uh, the other day into two years of home imprisonment. But you might also then program the equipment so that you are able to leave for doing your, your work and coming back at four o'clock and not leaving the house uh, from that, that time and until you next go into work. So you can find all sorts of refinement in the, in the mechanism. And then you can, of course, also design it so that you have the same report system at your place of work. So you are free half an hour until you reach your place of work and then it will be reported if you do not appear there. So there are no limits to accept uh, the money and of course this is uh, very very much cheaper than having people in ordinary prisons and maybe even more pleasant seen from the prisoner's point of view. I do not dare to think what the rest of the family think and what sort what does this mean for family life and what does it mean to be at home when the home literally has become the prison. One of the reasons why Nils Christie so fears the expansion of prisons is his vivid awareness of the potential for such growth. In modern societies, he claims, crime is in virtually unlimited supply. It can be made to appear and disappear almost at will by the police, the media, and other authorities. And under these circumstances, there is no natural limit to the growth of prisons. In relatively close-knit societies, there are certain things who are terribly bad, and they will be seen as really bad, independent if it was my son or my wife or my husband who did it. But then there are so many acts who do not necessarily have to get the label criminal. But in a society where people do not know each other, there will be such an abundance of acts that can be given that label of being criminal. So they come, so to say, in addition to the natural crimes, you get an endless amount of other acts that also could be called crimes. And this in contrast then to close-knit societies where something was terrible, but the rest of it could be understood. With us, it is so much that not necessarily need to be understood. So there is no limit to what could be taken in as seen as criminal, at the same time as we have a capacity to do something with so much more than we had before. And we have an interest in doing it, since some people earn money on doing it. So thereby we get this crime control industry, which is in the extremely happy situation that there is no problem with the raw material.
one of the few industries uh, where this is the case. And I think this is, creates a really dangerous situation. This situation is aggravated, in Christie's view, by changes in the institution of law. At the same time that sociologists like him have been trying to establish the idea that in modern societies, crime is a socially constructed category and not a natural fact, lawmakers have tended to move in the opposite direction. The United States, for example, has created a sentencing commission whose job it is to specify precisely and regardless of circumstances just how much pain is to be meted out for each criminal act, as if these acts had an independent and unvarying meaning. The scales of justice, Christie says, have given way to a computer. Some legal systems are deteriorating very rapidly. And I think that is a maybe a bit intentionally ugly word. You could also say they were adapting to modernity very rapidly. I'm particularly thinking on um, types of society where they more and more make sentencing into a sort of automatic process. Not to find guilt, even though that is mostly decided through some sort of plea bargaining and by confession by the offender. But the decision of how much suffering is to take place is now so clearly specified either by the lawmakers the parliamentarians or sentencing boards that there is no question that it's a very simple thing to do it is needed to touch some few buttons and then you find 24 months of imprisonment or life and this process again is so fast that you create distance to the offender and, and thereby it's even more easy to do it the political matrix of these changes in nils christie's view is the decline of the welfare state, using that term in a broad sense. This decline reflects a broken moral consensus and not just a shortage of public money. It is particularly striking in Scandinavia, where the standard for social democratic government was set. Today, Christie characterizes the situation of Norway and the other Nordic countries as welfare states at the brink. The problem is that uh, it is quite obvious we cannot continue uh, what so often is called development. Um, and we get a large population uh, that is called unemployed, which is an idiotic term. It means, of course, they are working, but they are working without pay for what they are doing. So uh, it's the basic dilemma is if we will be able to redistribute uh, the resources so that people with the, can keep their dignity and get something for what they are doing. Or if we will continue the present uh, system with an increasing, steadily increasing amount of again, the idiotic, idiotic term, unemployment. And that group of unemployed will be difficult to govern, because this is really a sociological law, that if you want to control people, or if you want people to control themselves, according to some sort of standards, these people 
must have something to lose. And if the important thing is to create dignity, or the really important thing is seen as work, and that work doesn't exist, of course these people are more difficult to govern. And if in addition you have ideals of material well-being, or material belongings as indicators on status, then again you are in trouble. And thirdly, if your social system is of a sort where you can't even gain social capital, where if you don't know each other, so uh, you don't even have honor, you are again difficult to govern. And the temptation in this situation to use physical means for curtailing the lower classes, the dangerous classes, will be a very great one. I think it is necessary to look into the situation of the old caste societies. Our lower lower class has a sort of character of being a special caste. It's a caste society. But they are even more handicapped than some of the lower castes of India, for example, because they have nothing to provide except jobs for those who take care of them. So that's the only need we have for them as clients. And uh, if um, uh, this continues again, the temptation to really keep them as clients would be very, very great. And then we can see, in my society at least, we can see that the, we were very proud of our welfare states, but it has been a very, very shaky state recently. The offices for social service to the people in this little capital of uh, Norway, they are very difficult to get access to. We have private police watching the doors so the clients will behave. Um, you have to make appointments often weeks beforehand to come there. Uh, we are uh, not only getting a recession, but we are getting a repetition of conditions in between the wars. And then uh, the temptation will be great to try to get control by physical means. And the instrument in this control is given us, not intentionally, but it has become that way uh, in the drug policy. That drug policy is now playing a more and more important part uh, when it comes to the control of the lower classes. How this control works is a subject which Nils Christie will explore in more detail in the next program in this series. One example which he discusses in his book is the extraordinary number of people currently being returned to prison after release on probation or parole in the state of California. Fifteen years ago in that state, parolees rarely went back to prison on their current sentence. Then two things happened. The first was that parole and probation officers sensed a change in the political winds, shifted their emphasis from rehabilitation to control, and won the right to use guns in their work. The second was the institution of sophisticated drug testing. By 1987, nearly half of those released on parole or probation had been returned to prison. Drugs were the agency of control. In this program, 
Nils Christie has spoken of various contemporary tendencies which make prisons into a normal and unregarded feature of our social landscape, create an underclass of dangerous strangers exempt from fellow feeling, and anesthetize citizens to the pain which is mechanically metered out to these strangers in their name by computerized courts. More than crime, he fears the potentially totalitarian consequences of the current fight against crime, and he wonders whether every step on this path will seem so compellingly rational that few will notice that it is faith in reason which engenders these monsters in the first place. It is not more than one or two months ago I found a little note in a correctional digest that is published in the United States, which in a way uh, was the most extreme example of utility thinking when it comes to the underclass and what you can do about the underclass in uh, a modern society. There was a report from Taiwan that 13 persons in Taiwan had been sentenced to death and they had been executed while they were in um, such a machinery that keep your lung and uh, heart moving. What is the word? Respirator. In a respirator. They were executed while in respirators so that their body parts should be unhurt, be moved into other bodies. And this is, of course, very rational. Why should it not be? Why shouldn't we use people There are several thousand on waiting list in the United States. Why should they not be used for the good purpose of uh, giving life to other people if we live in a rational society? If you could say, well, doctors wouldn't say yes. Why shouldn't doctors say yes? They need the kidneys. You could say judges wouldn't say yes. Why shouldn't judges say yes if it was a law who said it was okay? There's no hope in professionals in protecting us against it. So maybe the only hope is some sort of gut feeling somewhere. We're back to how then to create social situations so that the ordinary animal reflective devices, again in Hannah Arendt's words, how they could be activated to protect us against the rational utility thinking that you can find in these areas. Why not take the organs of these executed people? Yes, that is exactly the question. That was the, what the people in Taiwan thought. It would be such a waste. It was so good to know they were used and something good comes out of this mess. But still, most of us, or some of us, maybe I should say, would have some gut reactions saying this ought just not to be done and how shall we preserve such instinctual reaction against the most superb utility thinking we can find. But how do you answer that question? What is the answer to the question why not do this? No, I would just say it is uh, indecent. There are limits of the same category as I think it is limits 
how we could use the funeral. Can you think of anything more wasteful than a funeral? Here we are, gathered, emotionally upset, filled with sorrow. We would like so much to have the person there. And then we have this case of lost opportunities. Why don't we put up big signs that if he had not smoked, we wouldn't have been here now? Why don't you do that? Wouldn't that be a good thing for the health authorities to do? ideas you've been listening to part one of crime control as industry by david cayley a three-part series on the ideas of norwegian criminologist niels christie of the university of oslo technical operations by lawn tulk production assistants gail brownell and liz nodge the series continues next week at this time with a program about how rates of imprisonment are shaped by culture as much as by rates of crime. A transcript of today's program is available for $7 or $18 for the full three-part series. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Crime Control, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And stay tuned to Easy Street with Margaret Pachu following the news. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Mm-hmm.